and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Manya, who did you speak with this week? Sefi, I spoke with Mark Dubowitz, the CEO of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, about the decision to lift the arms embargo on Iran this week. Sefi, how about you? Wow, that's a really important topic and something that we at AJC have been focused on much closer to home. I spoke with uh, Jacob Kornblue, um, the uh, national politics reporter for Jewish Insider, who is himself a Haredi Jew, about some of the challenges in the Haredi world dealing with the COVID-19 lockdown and actually some violence that he himself fell victim to among people who were really dissatisfied about that lockdown. Speaking of important topics, we are going to be talking about some very important and relevant information on a live podcast episode next week hosted by the Stryker Center. Yes, there's a program called the Anti-Semitism Gap coming up next week, Wednesday, October 28th at 4 p.m. in partnership with Temple Emanuel Stryker Center here in New York City. We'll be hosting Avi Mayer, AJC's Managing Director of Global Communications, and Holly Huffnagel, AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism. And we'll be taking those interviews together, Manya, which I'm so excited about. So if people want to go to AJC.org slash podcast for more information, that's the place to find it. Let's hit the show. This week, AJC's Advocacy Anywhere featured my live podcast conversation with Jewish insider journalist Jacob Kornblut. If you want to watch the whole video, including our Q&A section, you can head to AJC.org slash Advocacy Anywhere. Now, I'm pleased to bring you the audio from that conversation. Two weeks ago, on October 7th, while reporting on protests in the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi community in Brooklyn, Jacob, you were attacked by a mob of Haredi Jews who spat at you, kicked you, called you a number of names, including perhaps worst of all, Nazi, such that you had to be evacuated by police and seek safety at a police station, all because you have publicly called for the community to follow the coronavirus restrictions put in place by the city and state of New York. Jacob, thank you for joining us. Let me start off by repeating what we said at the time on behalf of all of us here at AJC, Jacob. We are glad that you're okay. Thank you. This guy, Heshi Tischler, uh, who incited the mob against you, says that the Haredi community is, quote, at war against Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio. He has what he calls an army who appear to be mostly teenage Haredi boys. For our listeners who aren't familiar with this character, can you tell us who is this guy, Heshi Tischler? He's a longtime resident of the Borough Park community. Obviously, he's an expediter. He's helped on a communal level. But in recent years, he is seeking public office. He tried his luck in 2017. He came in third place with 500 votes. In recent months, obviously, he has tapped into that anger and frustration at how government is approaching this pandemic, primarily the slow, gradual reopening process where members of the community felt that the mayor and the governor have applied a one standard for all when it comes to restrictions and to reopening. And therefore, you know, 
while we are a more insular community, but a large community, very dense, members of the community felt that opening houses of worship, resuming businesses, and you know, opening playgrounds and schools were not done fast enough. In the summer, the rate, the positivity rate was very low. And so while people were lax because of, you know, watching reports, accepting reality, but also not seeing the numbers that we saw in March, in mid-March, when the outbreak began, they returned to normal. It wasn't that the government had advised them, you can resume services, you can resume weddings and gatherings. It was just, there was basically no enforcement, but also no guidance, uh, no reaching out to the community, no education about how severe this virus is. It was only in early September when there was already a few weeks of an uptick in positive cases within the community that the mayor and the governor stepped in and said, hey, this is alarming. So this individual who has been in recent months already, you know, gaining a following just because he defied government, he called for non-compliance, he actually broke into some playgrounds and alerted the media about it. He actually stood with lawmakers representing this community just because they felt that if they would not stand with him, they would lose support within the community. And so emboldened by that following, he appointed himself as spokesperson for the community in creating this bad image that portrayed the Orthodox Jewish Hasidic community as a people who are spreading the virus, who are disobeying the law. That wasn't the case. It was just one leader leading a very fringe and loud group that made it to the headlines. Well, so so let me ask you about that, uh, because you and I certainly know that the Orthodox community is not a monolith. And, and even within the Orthodox community, the Haredi community is not a monolith. It, it sounded like you were just saying that this kind of anti-lockdown movement within the Haredi community doesn't really exist at all, that it's it's just a few loudmouths. Is that true? Are there significant differences within parts of the community about people who are in favor of masking, in favor of lockdown? Are there some places or some Hasidic sects where the restrictions are more or less controversial? I would separate it into three groups. You have one group mostly within the Orthodox community, but also spreading within the Hasidic community that comply with all the government regulations, law-abiding citizens who understand how severe this is just because we were hard hit and because we lost so many relatives and friends that they understand that they need to get along, come along, collective responsibility to actually face this heads on. There's the second group, which is more within the Hasidic community who don't trust government, distrust secular authorities, but with the right guidance, with the right approach, would not go against, would not be anti-lockdown, would not engage 
in violent protests or even speak out against compliance. That is the majority that government failed to actually reach out to and to make sure that the right approach is taken in order to bring down this infection rate, in order to fight this virus. The third group is that group that you described, the anti-lockdown movement, who are basically people who are either angry, frustrated at what government represents, but also follow the guidance of the guy who was elected four years ago, who said in the beginning, this is a democratic hoax, that you can contract the virus because you will receive the treatment and get out of this, beat it within two days. Mm. So what? People are getting sick. It's fine. Number one, we can get to herd immunity. And number two, these are a bunch of Democrats who are trying to impose their authority on us just because they disagree with us politically. And that is that fringe group that is noisy, that engages in these kinds of acts, but they are the one who are actually, you know, out in front, emboldened by this populist leader who has appointed himself as being the spokesperson for the voiceless. And whatever measures they take to defy government and to get into the headlines as a people who are actually opposing certain measures, that is where they get their satisfaction from. It's not a collective responsibility to actually deal with this virus. It's just to make a point. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you mentioned President Trump, though, not by name. Perhaps it's not surprising that you head into the political direction to talk about this, of course, because you are a politics reporter uh, for Jewish Insider. One of the things I think that so many of us admire about you is that you're not focused on kind of you're not generally focused on the niche issue and concerns of the Haredi community, but you're a national politics reporter for Jewish Insider. But since you do mention President Trump, let me take this opportunity first to note that AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. And then to ask you a question, because one of the things that I noticed in the videos of the attack on you is that you can see a number of Trump flags. I know that locally, the Haredi community in New York tends to be aligned with Democratic candidates. Uh, But the AJC poll that we released this week found that while three-quarters of the American Jewish community at large prefers Vice President Biden, three quarters of the Orthodox community prefers President Trump. With those flags and that poll in mind, and maybe with the coronavirus skepticism in some sectors of the community in mind as well, is there some kind of a political shift going on in the community? And if so, what would be driving it? I wouldn't call it a political shift. It's just politics has changed dramatically in the last five years. Generally, if you look back at 2012, 2008, and even going back to George W. Bush's re-election in 2004, you'll see the numbers coming out from the election districts within the Orthodox community. There was overwhelming support for Republicans, probably around 65 and 70 percent. 
And in 2016, President Trump actually probably matched John McCain's support, but didn't get as close as Mitt Romney got in 2012, just because when there's a charged election, people take sides, but also because Hillary was a known figure within the community. But my point is that, you know, a generic Republican candidate would always get the support of a majority of the Orthodox community just because they align themselves politically, but also conservative family values, also on abortion, on marriage, even on support for Israel. Obviously, we can't deny that during the eight years of Obama, there was a campaign, you know, to discredit everything that President Obama did when it came to Israel, just because of the tension that was between the president and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So there is this sort of narrative within the community that the Republican Party is the home for the Orthodox Jewish community. Obviously, as you mentioned in the AJC poll, you saw 18% support for Joe Biden. I would say, you know, that number is a little higher. You'll obviously, if you look at exit polls or at actual results, you'll probably see around 25% support for Joe Biden. But largely, a national Republican running in New York will get about around 70, 75% from the Orthodox community. So a few moments ago, you were talking about how the fact that city and state officials kind of ignored the Haredi community and looked the other way, maybe from lapses in following certain coronavirus restrictions, led to things kind of spiraling out of control. There have been moments, especially earlier on in the pandemic, a tweet or two by city officials come to mind, where some elected officials have seemed to pick on the Haredi community. Do you think that the community has legitimate grievances against those making decisions about COVID restrictions? Absolutely. Mayor de Blasio just this morning expressed regrets of the approach he took, but also of the kind of rhetoric that he implied that the Orthodox Jewish community was not complying with the social distancing guidelines and the restrictions that he imposed. Um, That was clearly not the case. Governor Cuomo, in his press briefings, when he discussed the uptick in these red zones, specifically singled out the Orthodox Jewish community. He actually showed, presented two pictures of a large gathering in Kiris Joel, a Satman, one in Crown Heights, which both of them were not representing the real picture in the hotspots, in the red zones of the Brooklyn and Queens communities. Wasn't one of them from like 14 years ago or something like that? Yes, but towards the end of that press briefing, they actually switched it to a more recent picture. So I'll give him, you know, I'll give him (laughs) that. But clearly, you know, at the start, first of all, you have to look back at August 1st, okay? I looked at the numbers. There were reports of a spike in cases starting August 1st. The first press briefing where de Blasio came out publicly, you know, alarming the community about the situation was in September, okay? So you had four months where you could actually deal with the problem 
by either mass testing or the right outreach to actually bring down the infection rate so we don't go into the high holidays with new restrictions. But it was also the few months between. You have to understand one thing. If you look back at the beginning of April, the community voluntarily closed down houses of worship. Yes, it was a recommendation by the government. Yes, the governor issued an executive order prohibiting services, but it was largely rabbis and community leaders who came together and said, this is serious, we have to deal with it. It was those few months in the summer where the rate went dramatically down that the city had time reaching out to the community, educating them about how severe this is, even though we are not seeing the numbers that we saw at the beginning of the outbreak, but also in implementing certain measures that the community can live with, even going into the high holidays. There were some practical solutions such as street closures, outdoor services, plenty of solutions that government was presented with that could have avoided this, you know, what some people describe assault on the community. Some people see it just as harsh measures. But I do believe that by singling out the Orthodox Jewish community, and again, it's in certain neighborhoods where there's actually a diverse community, I live in Borough Park for the past 18 years. It's not only Hasidic Jews that live in Borough Park. You have Italian, you have Russians, Asians, Muslims, a Hispanic community. It's a diverse community. So when you look specifically at Borough Park, you cannot just single out one certain community when you know that we are in the midst of a holiday where attending services is probably the only thing that you do the entire day, except of checking your account balance and eating. <laughs> but it was these few weeks that the government could have stepped up outreach, could have stepped up taking certain measures to encourage mass testing, to encourage the community to actually wear masks and keep social distance. Again, talking about the majority of law-abiding citizens who would follow any guidelines. And mm -hmm. this is the time that was lost. And it's not mm -hmm. me just saying it. It's people who are in government who are saying that this was not the right approach. It was the mayor himself acknowledging that the approach he took wasn't the right way. And therefore, I think that people are allowed to have grievances. People mm -hmm. are allowed to criticize. But what we have to understand is that this is a crisis that we haven't seen before. This is a health crisis. This is about saving lives. So whatever grievances you have, however you see government acting, this shouldn't you know, guide you in engaging in activity that is against saving lives that would actually not bring down the infection rate, but actually spread the virus. So let me just throw kind of like a few quick, almost lightning round questions at you. And I recognize you don't have necessarily stats at your fingertips for this, but what percentage of the Haredi community in New York would you say 
recognizes that this is a health crisis on on the kind of scale that 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 we should recognize it as i would say an overwhelming majority so 75 80% more than that even whatever you describe overwhelming majority <laughs> and what about you know adhering to masking and to you know basic kind of lockdown steps what percentage there was an increase in recent weeks just because people understand that you cannot ignore what is happening, but also because most of members in the community are not out there to defy government. But again, there's distrust in general in government and in media, but also there was a lack of people actually practicing this just because we were not aware that mm-hmm. this is still happening. And once alerted about it, it was kind of late. The government gave like seven days for us to adapt. It takes a little longer. Does the city need to do more outreach in Yiddish, less of a reliance on internet and television outreach? I mean, just to kind of fill in the gaps, wouldn't reach the Haredi community. You know, what is it that there needs to be more of in order to kind of help the message get through to the community? Right. You hit the nail on the point. It's basically the right outreach, obviously. You have to talk their language, but you also have to use the resources of the right allocation, which is if you are going to deploy trucks with loudspeakers in Yiddish, don't send it to Forest Hills in Queens or Staten Island. Send it to Borough Park and certain neighborhoods in Williamsburg. Because the religious communities in Forest Hills are generally not of European extraction, and so they don't speak Yiddish. That's what you're saying, right? Right. When you're going to distribute masks just because, you know, people wouldn't go necessarily and purchase masks, don't send 10,000 masks to a community that is about 150,000 people (laughs) on the day before Yom Kippur, where people go to shul, attend services the entire day, where you would need probably two masks, okay? 10,000 masks is not enough is not sufficient. Number three, it is using the voices within the community, those influencers, those leaders who actually could bring awareness to the issue, but also who can influence the community to abide by those guidelines. It is not the governor or the mayor convening a press conference, talking on TV, and issuing a press release that is going to bring down the infection rate. It's going to take individuals within the community, but it's also going to take government because government has the resources, because government actually has what it takes to deal with any crisis, to enforce the restrictions, to actually bring the resources to the right locations so people are aware about the crisis, but also encourage them to do it voluntarily because at the end, we all want to save lives. This Mm -hmm. is our guiding principle. Mm -hmm. Jacob, my last question is about the media. There too, people have pointed to coverage that seems to suggest that a good deal of the spreading of coronavirus in New York is because of religious Jews. On the other hand, 
you are a member of the media. And it was, frankly, it was heartwarming to see on Twitter so many public journalist figures reaching out to you publicly to, you know, say that they hope you were all right in the aftermath of the assault and, and all that. Do you identify more with the journalists who are maybe just trying to do their jobs and occasionally their coverage goes in a direction that we feel kind of maybe crosses the line toward anti-Semitism? Or do you identify more with the religious Jews who are just trying to live their lives and as a result have maybe kind of transgressed the coronavirus restrictions from time to time? How do you, you know, square that circle living in two worlds? Well, you got to first be a human being. And second, do your job ethically, morally, and professionally. And I think that you can separate your opinion and your beliefs from the work that you do, but you don't have to compromise. You can still have those beliefs and that opinion without conflicting it with your work. And therefore, if you're on city government, if you're a member of the media or if you are just a member of the community, a middle-class small business owner, while you are right to be frustrated at what is happening and you can take sides on any issue and pick any side of the political spectrum, there's also an objective that is our guiding principle, which is to save lives. And so the media and people should engage in good faith to actually deal with a problem and not create more conflict. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. I hope everyone enjoyed that special live podcast conversation. We actually have another one coming up next week on Wednesday, October 28th at 4 p.m. in partnership with New York City's Temple Emanuel Stryker Center. So if you want to tune in to that important conversation about the state of anti-Semitism in America today, head to AJC.org slash podcast. Sunday was a sad day for AJC and some might argue a scary day for the Middle East. Despite pleas from the American government, the United Nations lifted a decade-long arms embargo on Iran, one of the key concessions at the center of the JCPOA or Iran nuclear agreement. Here to talk about the ramifications of that decision is Mark Dubowitz, CEO of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, which was accused by Iran last year of designing the U.S. government's Iran policy. The sanctions imposed by the Islamic Republic's regime made Mark and his FDD colleagues potential targets of Iranian operatives. Mark, welcome. Great, Manya. Thanks so much for having me. So let's jump right in and discuss why the expiration date for this arms embargo was not reconsidered, given the regime's aggression just over the past year. Well, unfortunately, this was in the context of a major transatlantic dispute between the United States and its European allies over the Iran deal in general, over this question of snapback, which is the snapback of the UN Security Council resolutions and sanctions that have been in place for many years before the JCPOA. And uh, unwillingness of the Brits, the French, the Germans, and certainly the Russians and Chinese to go along with the American objective of keeping in place this arms embargo to prevent Iran from both proliferating its weapons to its surrogates and proxies, as well as acquiring very sophisticated and deadly advanced conventional weaponry, particularly from China and Russia. But I mean, given the rocket attacks 
on American and British troops in Iraq, the, the proxies in Syria, in Yemen, in uh, Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Why would nations think this was still a good idea? It's baffling. I mean, it's baffling that they they put this political dispute ahead of protecting their own countries and their own people from the proliferation of these deadly weapons, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just the United States or Israel that needs to be concerned about this, but the Europeans themselves have to be concerned about an unstable Middle East where Iran continues to create such bloodshed and such instability. And this is going to be a problem for the Europeans because that kind of instability and bloodshed only causes refugee flows that undermine European security. Mm-hmm. So to be clear for our listeners, what exactly did the embargo prevent? So when the embargo was in place, what it prevented, number one, was Iran from acquiring conventional weapons from foreign military suppliers. So buying fighter jets, attack helicopters, battle tanks, warships, right? Getting its hands on the most sophisticated and deadly conventional weapons that are in the global arms market. And number two, it prevented Iran from proliferating its weapons, uh, the weapons that it manufactures domestically to its allies, proxies, and surrogates around the globe. Now, of course, Iran was always in complete violation of the arms embargo and continued to proliferate those weapons to Hezbollah and Hamas and Iraqi militias, Houthi terrorists in Yemen, and its network of, of surrogates and proxies around the globe. But with the more important aspect of this was really the the prohibition against Iran's acquisition of these deadly conventional weapons to support its malign and, and dangerous activities. So it prevented it from importing as well as exporting arms, and now both of those are permitted. Well, those are permitted uh, according to the UN limits that had otherwise been put in place. Now, of course, there still remain very powerful U.S. secondary sanctions in place that can be used by this administration and subsequent administrations to counter, deter, and punish anybody providing those conventional weapons to Iran. And, and mm-hmm. we can talk about what those what those really mean. Yeah, and you're talking about the very heavy sanctions that the United States put in place in anticipation of this embargo expiring, right? Yeah, I mean, there have been longstanding sanctions that have been put in place by multiple administrations, by Congress over many years to try and prevent Iran from acquiring and proliferating these weapons. And yes, in anticipation of the arms embargo expiring, the current administration put in even more powerful and coercive sanctions to try and, and deter this kind of behavior. The goal really being to have put the Islamic Republic into financial straits. Correct. Yeah. So there have been a, there have been a variety of sanctions economic sanctions that have been designed to drain the resources that the regime has to fund its malign activity, mm-hmm. and new sanctions as well that are specifically focused on, for example, Chinese and Russian weapons suppliers, middlemen who are in the business of helping Iran acquire these most deadly weapons. So really a uh, an architecture of sanctions that's been designed over the years to focus specifically on conventional weaponry, but also economic sanctions designed to prevent Iran from having the resources to buy these weapons. Mm -hmm. So now let's go back to the import-export operation that's now within some limits permitted. Who will the most likely be Iran's customers? And what is Iran in the market to buy? So most importantly, Iran is in the market to buy these deadly weapons from the Chinese, from the Russians in particular. I mean, it's not likely that our European allies are starting to sell fighter jets and battle tanks to the Islamic Republic anytime soon. But certainly, 
The Russians and the Chinese are, and they're chomping at the bit to get into the Iranian market and sell anything, again, from advanced fighter jets to attack helicopters to air defense systems. The Russians and the Chinese have been waiting for the expiration of this arms embargo and are now ready to do so. Now, some have said, well, Iran can't afford it because they're under punishing sanctions and that's cost their economy hundreds of billions of dollars. So Iran doesn't have the money necessarily to buy these weapons. I think the response to that is that may be true, but we may see a very different Iran strategy after the election. Mm -hmm. But given what's happened, what is the likelihood of America under a different administration getting back into that JCPOA? I think the likelihood is quite high. Certainly the Biden administration, uh, Joe Biden himself, has made it clear that uh, that is his objective. He said that repeatedly on the campaign trail, that he intends to take America back into the JCPOA if Iran goes back into compliance. And going back into the JCPOA means not just Iranian nuclear compliance, it means America commits itself to lift all of these sanctions and provide Iran access back to global energy markets, back to the global financial system, and be able to go back to the kind of trade that was taking place just after the JCPOA and before the president withdrew America from the deal. Any administration couldn't go back into the JCPOA with the sanctions still in place. That's exactly right, Anya. You know, that, that is a common misunderstanding, right? This isn't an arms control agreement where the United States agrees to reduce our nuclear warheads in exchange for the Soviet Union reducing its nuclear warheads. What the mm-hmm. JCPOA is essentially a deal where Iran agrees to nuclear limits and we agree to lifting economic sanctions. And what that means is providing the regime with tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that it can use to rebuild its economy, but also to fund its nefarious and destructive activities, including building up a conventional military to support its asymmetric power that it's used in the region through the Quds Force and through Hezbollah and through Shiite militias to create immense death and destruction. Mm-hmm. So are the sanctions that the Trump administration put in place, are they a sufficient replacement for the restrictions that were under the embargo? No, it depends. I mean, I think that the economic sanctions that the Trump administration has imposed demonstrates that unilateral U.S. power is overwhelming in changing the risk-reward calculus of private actors, right? Banks and other financial institutions, energy companies, industrial companies decided to stay out of Iran despite the fact that diplomats in key European capitals and in Moscow and in Beijing and around the world had a very different perspective on the wisdom of withdrawing from the deal than the Trump administration had. But it didn't matter because those decisions were made by tens of thousands of market actors. And those market actors decided that the threat of U.S. sanctions, as well as the desire to access the U.S. market and the U.S. dollar, were far more important than access to the Iranian market. So economic sanctions have worked on market actors. The question is, do these sanctions work on government-run military companies in China and Russia? And there, it all depends. It depends on the willingness of the next administration to use these sanctions and aggressively enforce them and threaten not only these military companies, but the financial institutions involved in financing these deals and use the most draconian punishment, which is to cut them off the U.S. market, the U.S. dollar, the SWIFT financial messaging system, and really to go after them for criminal prosecutions through the Department of Justice and through uh, material support provisions that have been put in place. 
Mm-hmm. This question may seem to come out of left field, but a lot of people are saying the coronavirus pandemic has hit Iran really hard and that that is a reason to ease up a little. You know, This is a, a country that is struggling financially. Now they're having the worst public health crisis ever. What do you make of that? Could the pandemic complicate this in any way? Well, certainly the regime has, through this pandemic and economic crisis, decided to devote its resources not to the welfare of its people, but to its military to the Revolutionary Guards who got a double-digit budget, budgetary increase in the last budget, all the while the economy is collapsing around the regime. So it's clear where the regime's priorities are. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't expect the regime to change those priorities in light of the expiration of the arms embargo or a return to the JCPOA. If anything, I see the regime using the money they get in order to continue to fund these destructive activities, including the acquisition of these deadly weapons. With respect to the actual corona crisis, yes, it is severe in Iran, but one must remember that the regime has hundreds of billions of dollars in off-the-book assets sitting inside Iran in rials, controlled by the supreme leader. Uh, He has refused to use this money to support the Iranian people, to fund the acquisition of humanitarian goods. And on the other side, the U.S. Treasury Department has bent over backwards to make sure that there are humanitarian channels through Switzerland, that there are exemptions, that there are licenses that provide all of the assurances that humanitarian companies, medical companies, pharmaceutical providers, and financial institutions need to get humanitarian goods into Iran. In fact, the administration has said repeatedly they're willing to provide humanitarian support to the Iranian people. The Ayatollah has rejected that uh, flat out. Okay. So let me ask you to paint two scenarios, one best case, one worst case going forward now that this embargo has been lifted. We'll start with best case. Well, best case scenario is who's ever president in January 2021 and whatever decision that president makes, whether to go back into the JCPOA, negotiate a new agreement, keep enforcing the sanctions in a maximum pressure context, that whatever happens, that president uses all instruments of American power to ensure that Iran cannot acquire these deadly weapons or proliferate deadly weapons to its proxies. That's the best case scenario that Joe Biden or Donald Trump is willing to either rally international support and or use American unilateral leverage to prevent Iran from building up a deadly arsenal of these weapons to threaten its neighbors and threaten American security. Mm-hmm. Okay. And worst case? Well, worst case, we've, we've touched upon. Worst case is the <laughs> United States goes back into the JCPOA or negotiates a new deal. There are no restrictions, international restrictions on Iran's ability to acquire weapons or proliferate those weapons. And the president doesn't use U.S. secondary sanctions in an aggressive way to try and counter and deter the Russians and the Chinese, who, again, are delighted and eager to get involved in Iran's arms bazaar. And then I think what we see in a a worst case scenario is the regime in Iran with fighter jets, attack helicopters, battle tanks, warships, a, you know, deadly long range missile program, taking patient pathways to nuclear weapons, threatening its neighbors, threatening Israel, threatening the United States. And I think that's an entirely plausible scenario. Mm, Okay. Well, Mark, thank you for laying this out for us. We shall hope peaceful minds prevail. Yeah, God willing. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Dan Elbaum, AJC's Chief Advocacy Officer. 
Dan, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thanks, Effie. Great to be on the show. This Shabbat, I imagine that the main topic discussed will be my youngest daughter's bat mitzvah, which is this weekend. But if I find a moment when someone isn't talking about making sure my daughter thanks the rabbi in her Devar Torah, or if the cookies with her name came in, I will try to talk about one of my favorite topics, presidential trivia. This won't be a new topic at our table. I love talking about history, and specifically the presidents. By the age of three, both my girls could recite the presidents in order. The older one even had a tune for it. As you can imagine, at 16 and 13, there's slightly less into it now. But this Shabbat, I won't be asking them who the first president to be born in a hospital was. It's actually Jimmy Carter, if you can believe it. Or of the names of the four colleges that have graduated U.S. presidents and Super Bowl champion quarterbacks, but actually something a little closer to AJC. You see, this week, AJC released our annual survey of American Jewish opinion. This is a survey we do every year, and is the largest survey of its kind conducted of American Jews. Now remember, as we say after each show, AJC is a nonpartisan organization and we do not support candidates. Yet American Jews feel differently, with 75% saying they would support Joe Biden compared to only 22% supporting Donald Trump. American Jews, remember, not the American Jewish Committee, believe that Joe Biden would be better than Donald Trump at handling the pandemic, 78 to 19, combating terrorism, 71 to 26, in fighting anti-Semitism, 75 to 21. The president did notably better in one area, strengthening the U.S.-Israeli relationship, but still lost 54 to 42. After moving the embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the Golan Heights, and creating peace with two Arab countries, the president and his supporters could be forgiving for asking what else American Jews would like to see him do. Of course, for Republicans, this is nothing new, with Mitt Romney, John McCain, and George W. Bush seeing similar enough numbers. Yet there was some news in which Republicans can take solace. The numbers were nearly the opposite when looking at Orthodox Jews, where 74% identified him as their choice and only 18% backed the former vice president. Now, Orthodox Jews might only be 10% of the American Jewish population right now. But there's not a single scholar who does not see those numbers dramatically rising. If that holds, we would start to see the closer and closer results, maybe right around the time that Barron Trump runs against Sasha Obama. So I plan to talk about these numbers. And to my girls, this will be a Shabbat dinner that they will hopefully endure along with grace and minimal eye rolling. Like me, like many of us, they take for granted that they are fully engaged participants in the great American experiment. It would never occur to them that their religion would bar them from participating in their country's electoral process, or that the government would discriminate against them because of their religion. Their grandfathers, for whom they were named, would have felt differently. My grandfather was a survivor who lost his entire family in the camps. My wife's grandfather came to this country as a child and served his nation in the Second World War. For them, participating in America's democracy was a privilege, and one they would never have taken for granted. Every conversation about an American president or a presidential candidate was prefaced with the question, was he good for the Jews? The fact that three out of the four of the candidates running for the two highest offices in land have Jewish family members would have filled them with amazement. So this Shabbos, I will talk about AJC survey and remind my children yet again how lucky we are to live in a country where, in the words of George Washington, we give bigotry no sanction and persecution no assistance. I will pretend not to see their yawns when I remind them how miraculous it is that there is a Hanukkah party at the White House every year. And for good measure, I will let them know that Ulysses Grant was the first president to attend a synagogue dedication, and remarkably, William Howard Taft was the first known to have attended a Passover Seder. 
And if anyone is wondering from the beginning, the four colleges that have produced presidents and Super Bowl quarterbacks are Stanford, Michigan, the Naval Academy, and Miami of Ohio. Shabbat shalom. Over to you, Mani. Dan, mazel tov to your daughter. What a timely bat mitzvah for a teen presidential scholar. Our Shabbat table conversation will be similar, but we will start by talking about tennis. So I've mentioned before that my Friday evenings involve scrambling to a tennis lesson with my son and trying to get dinner on the table. But what we don't do on Fridays is just as noteworthy. We don't go to a synagogue. You see, we moved here two years ago and had planned to go shul shopping in time to join a congregation by this year's high holidays. But this little thing called a pandemic got in the way. But I've started wondering whether my son Max will start Hebrew school soon enough and whether he will understand the importance of being part of a Jewish community. Now, by the time we can congregate again, will that importance of community be lost on him? Will he prefer to, well, just play tennis? But this week, Lev Ruderin came to the rescue. He and Max have the same tennis coach. His mom, Jody, is the editor-in-chief of The Forward and served as the Jerusalem correspondent for The New York Times for three years when Lev was my son's age. Lev and his twin sister are celebrating their B'nai Mitzvah next month. Lev's Mitzvah project is to raise money for the Israel Tennis and Education Centers. ITEC has 14 centers across Israel from Beersheba to Haifa, where more than 20,000 children play. Lev said it is one of the largest social service organizations for low-income children in Israel with programs for kids with disabilities and tournaments that pair Israeli Jews, Arabs, Bedouins, and Druze on the tennis court. Not only do kids build racket skills and perseverance, they come from the bevy of backgrounds and religions that call Israel home and build friendships. Lev and Max's coaches agreed to hold a series of tennis clinics this weekend to help Lev reach his goal. I signed up Max to go watch and maybe hit a few balls with the older guys. The other night, Lev and I talked about tennis and Torah. He talked about working with one of his temple's cantors to prepare his Torah portion and how the perseverance and patience he's been learning on the tennis court has come in handy as he struggles to read and reflect upon the story of Jacob and Esau in Hebrew. Max, quite eager to be part of our conversation, asked, what's a Torah portion? We talked about Lev's memories of Israel, which mostly involved biking and skateboarding through the Israeli landscape. He even gave me some helpful advice on the topic I discussed here last week, whether to read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl, a vile anti-Semite. Lev suggested having them listen to the audiobooks so I'm not complicit. Clever kid. All this to say, Lev encouraged me to stop wondering. We have a Jewish community, and Max does understand the importance of it. Max pays attention to my work for AJC. He asks questions about Israel and Jewish traditions and history. He lights up, as do I, when we randomly meet others who are Jewish and we are reminded that we are not alone. Now, that doesn't mean we won't join a synagogue. We've set a new goal of finding a shul by the start of next year. We'll get there. But in the meantime, Max is learning during this time of exile, if you will, that Jewish life, values, and community reach far beyond the synagogue. It's everywhere in New Jersey, in Israel, even on a tennis court. We'll include a link to Lev's Mitzvah Project in our show notes, because that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, how about you? Mazel tov to all the B'nai Mitzvahs happening this week and beyond. At my Shabbat table, the name Rabbi Jonathan Sachs comes up pretty frequently. As a prolific commentator on the Torah and prayer book, Rabbi Sachs is someone my friends and I cite often to bring a little Jewish wisdom to our Shabbat experience. But the 72-year-old Rabbi Sachs isn't your run-of-the-mill rabbi. 
He served for more than two decades as the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, where he was perhaps the most public representative of British Jews. He's also a knighted lord, holding the level of baron, I believe. He became known around the world as a great thinker and an inspirational teacher. Since retiring from his role as chief rabbi in 2013, Rabbi Sachs has hardly slowed down teaching at New York University and Yeshiva University in New York and publishing several more books. He has also been a speaker at the AJC Global Forum in Washington. Rabbi Sachs announced last week that he has been diagnosed with cancer for the third time in his life and that he is receiving treatment. I hope that if you're a praying person or even if you aren't, you'll have Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Harav Yaakov Tzvi Ben Liba, in mind and send some good thoughts his way for a full and speedy recovery. In his honor, we'll conclude with a brief clip from the end of his weekly message about this week's Torah portion, the story of Noah and the flood. But it does seem that the Torah sets a high standard for the moral life. It isn't enough to be righteous if that means turning our backs on a society that is guilty of wrongdoing. We must take a stand. We must protest. We must register dissent, even if the probability of changing minds is small. That's because the moral life is a life we share with others. We are, in some sense, responsible for the society of which we are a part. It isn't enough to be good. We have to encourage others to be good. There are times when each of us must lead. To Rabbi Sachs and to all of those in need of healing at this difficult time, I say, Refuah Shlema, a complete recovery. And to all of you, I say, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good Shabbos. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.